Nazis, Brooklyn, the Beatles, adult entertainment. We'll talk about all that and more on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. Is everybody ready for the Mind Dog Magnificent Show? Start the clock. And welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here, as always. Looks like we're still having a little bit of scre- uh, streaming problems. Uh, if you've missed me for a couple of uh, days, uh, well, I appreciate you missing me. An explanation is due, though. Uh, we had a huge uh, technical meltdown. Uh, I'm going to blame it on Adobe. Adobe and Apple are blaming each other in the fight. Uh, Adobe and Apple both updated on my supercomputer, which runs this uh, program, at the same time. Uh, shortly after that, using Adobe Premiere would cause my uh, Macintosh just to completely shut down on its own, and I couldn't restart it uh, for uh, a while. I had to kind of replug it into a different outlet. So I was wondering, it was a very strange thing. Brought it into Apple, they did a few, full diagnostic on it and uh, found nothing wrong with the computer. Uh, but they did wipe it clean and starting from scratch. So I had to reinstall all of the software that I used to run all of the creative things that we do here. Uh, really a, a nightmare. I'm blaming Adobe on the, the update that they have because I did find several uh, people who had the same issue with their Macs uh, shutting down shortly after updating Premiere, and it was Premiere and Photoshop primarily that caused the thing. So pissed off at Apple. The show is not sponsored by Apple tonight. The show is brought to you by MyBookie.com. MyBookie.com is one of the most popular and trusted brands in the online gambling community. Its sports book offers an incredible variety of sports from American staples such as football and basketball to international sports such as KBO, rugby, and cricket. It even offers wages on entertainment and politics and simulated sports video games such as Madden 21 and NBA 2K21. If you're looking for a line on your favorite TV show, you can most certainly find it at mybookie.com. Maybe you can even find a line on who's at fault here, Apple or Adobe. I'm betting on Adobe this time. MyBookie's casino options are as plentiful as its sports books. There are 27 different table games such as Blackjack and Roulette and almost 300 unique slot options, 77 of which are 3D. You can even play live table games and video poker. Link is in the description, mybookie.com. Now, here's the thing. When you go there, you're going to want to use the pro, uh Promo code Mind Dog, Mind Dog, just like that one. And what that's going to do is going to double your initial deposit up to two thousand uh, dollars. So basically, you put down a thousand dollars, you got two thousand dollars, which to bet, with which to bet instantly like that. You're not going to double your money that quickly anyplace else. MyBookie.com link is in the description, and I do appreciate you patronizing our sponsors. I didn't even take time to change my glasses today uh, for the show, which is. Unusual, which just shows you how out of sync I am because of this whole Adobe issue. Anyway, tonight we're going to have another episode of Meet the Author. Robert Rosen is a guy who has a lot in common with me. Brooklyn Roots, going to have a um, Brooklyn accent like me that I won't be able to detect, but you folks out there in uh, uh, the middle of America and all around the world who will be hearing this program, uh, 
you'll be able to tell right away where he's from. <laughs> he's born and bred in Brooklyn. Uh, he's uh, also a uh, guy who's written a book on John Lennon, which, as you know me, you know I'm a very uh, huge fan of John Lennon and his work. His latest book is called Bobby in Naziland, A Tale of Flatbush. It's a memoir about growing up in Brooklyn in the 1950s and 60s, surrounded by Auschwitz survivors and World War II vets. His investigative memoir, Beaver Street, a history of modern pornography, received critical acclaim across the cultural spectrum from Vanity Fair to academic journals to adult video news. Uh, all <clears throat> Over the course of his career, he's edited pornographic magazines and an underground newspaper, written speeches for his secretary of the Air Force, and awarded a Hugo Boss Poetry Prize. Ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears, open your minds, and help me welcome in Robert Rosen to the Mind Dog TV podcast. Robert, welcome. Hey, Matt. H- how are you? Okay, that was some introduction. You do a really good commercial for me <laughs> and the bookie. Thank you. Uh, are you still in Brooklyn? No, I'm in Manhattan. I oh, moved that's... across the river uh, many decades ago now. M- moved uptown. Uh, I, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that guys like you, I mean, my brother's your age, born in 1952 as well, uh, and grew up in Brooklyn. A lot of people don't realize how much World War II still lingered in that period where you were, were just a small kid growing up in Brooklyn and how a lot of that crap from the war, you know, Nazism and all, all that kind of stuff, and uh, the melting pot that Brooklyn was, they don't realize that, you know, there was a lot of still... I don't want to call it tensions, but a lot of awareness of um, who whose side you were on and uh, all that kind of stuff, and ca- carried over. Uh, tell people about the experience of you know growing up next to Auschwitz survivors and World War II vets, and a bunch of anti-Semites, Semites too, because uh, there were there was a bit of that growing up in Brooklyn as well, right? No, not really anti-Semitism. People kept that to themselves but the way you described it is pretty good that the reason the book is called bobby in naziland is because at that time from you know i became conscious of things in the mid-1950s and from that point on that when you become conscious of what's going on around you everybody's talking about the nazis you see the numbers on the people's arms. Um, we're surrounded by World War II veterans and Auschwitz survivors. And the Auschwitz survivors didn't talk, but the people who knew what happened to the Auschwitz survivors, they talked. And, th- and that's, what you, that's what you heard about. And the book in part talks about how a four-year-old consciousness begins to absorb this information and what he makes of it. Right. I remember being, uh, and I, I was born in 59, so I'm a little bit uh, removed from, from that. And I, uh, my parents moved out to uh, Long Island. So a little bit removed from that. But I remember being a four-year-old. When we played war, we, it was always us against the Germans and all that stuff. So we were <laughs> very, very aware of World War II, but uh, not exactly um, in, in very um, – 
protected Long Island where I was. We weren't real. We didn't we didn't know about concentration camps and anything until I got into high school and started reading about it on my own. We didn't know any anything about that stuff as a young child. Did, uh, tell me about the effect that learning about that stuff had on five or six year old. Um, I think, and I talk about this in the the book that between the Auschwitz survivors never said anything, the World War II veterans who would talk and the people married to the World War II veterans and the people who just knew what happened. And you saw it on TV. You saw the newsreels of the concentration camps on TV and um, the Eichmann trial. Eichmann was captured 1961, I think, and the whole world Every, you know, my whole world, all of Flappish is riveted by the Eichmann trial, which is on TV every night. And it's just this constant flow of information about the Nazis and the camp and the camps. And I think that the whole neighborhood was under, was suffering from traumatic stress post-traumatic stress disorder, Um, but they didn't call it that yet. But, and nobody, but the way the people acted, that there was a lot of hatred going around, you know, hatred, not without reason, but, you know, like when they caught Eichmann, they just wanted to throw him in a furnace alive or something like that. You know, like, let's do to him what he did to the Jews. And it all has a psychologically scarring effect on the children. It was like, you know, Jews against Catholics and everybody against the Germans and, uh, you know, everybody's beating everybody up and nobody knows why they're doing it, but it's post-traumatic stress disorder. In retrospect, all these people had it. My my father had it. Uh, his, his, his veteran buddies had it. Um, I had it because, you know, I'm just constantly exposed to the hatred and the bad vibes and the trauma that the veterans are going through because of the things they did and they saw, which they never talk about. Right. And then you had the, that book published, The Rise and Fall of the, Th- of the Third Reich. I started reading that in third grade and they had um, these very vivid descriptions of what happened in concentration camps. And again, I talk about that in the book, what it was like to be like, you know, eight years old and reading in, in detail how the Germans gassed people. So, right. yeah, that's what it was like. Wow. And that's what I was exposed to. And, you know, yeah. obviously. It's got to no, go affect, it's got to affect your uh, overall. Um, Psyche, as a kid, that kind of stuff, because it was so dark and so, uh, you know, today we take for granted that thing about shocking things. So we're, it's harder to shock us. But at that, those times, uh, that was truly like uh, man's inhumanity uh, against man uh, it exemplified in a way that really shocked people. So it had to uh, affect the way you grew up and and uh, came to you know to, into being an adult. Uh, do you still carry those scars from from that experience? I think to 
one degree, you do carry it. But what I think happened was once I finally left that environment, um, I buried it. I just I didn't think about it for a long time. Right. And it was only maybe 10 years ago in my late 50, I was 60 years old when I started thinking about it again. And um, it all started coming back. And, you know, that's how Bobby in Nazi land came about, that I knew there was something going on there. It just hit me one day. There's something going on there in that neighborhood at that time that I had to explore in more detail detail. I didn't know what it was. And I started writing down everything I could think of that happened in that time and in that place. And I was just like writing and writing and writing for a couple of years, really, just the more I remembered, the more I remembered. And then finally, after I had like 400 single space pages piled up, I said, I better take a look at this. And I started going through it. And what jumped out on at me were Nazis that I did not realize how prevalent the Nazis were until I started reading this thing that had been piling up on my computer for a couple of years. And it's like, holy shit, it's shit. just it's Nazis, Bobby in in Nazi land. Right. Uh, that picture reminds me of my brother. <laughs> I've got a lot of pictures that look like I'm showing the cover right now of the book, Bobby and Nazi Land, a tale of Flatbush for the people on the audio side. Uh, but there's a photo on there of Bob when he was, I would probably say, uh, four or five, somewhere in that area. Yeah. And I have we had used to have anyway, a suitcase full of uh, photos that, that were just like that black and white takes me back. So um were there good times that and and uh, happy? There had to be happy memories and and some some of the um, really cool stuff about Brooklyn. I think probably made it into the book. Just I have not read the book yet. Just the synopsis and, and follow along. But so there have to be some of that uh, magical Brooklyn culture that got into the book. For instance, the candy shop experience. You know uh, the. Uh, chocolate eclairs at the counter in a candy shop which they didn't have you know those and those kind of things is there some of that uh in the book uh i get a lot into sports i get a lot into the brooklyn dodgers that i was probably born the last possible year 1952 i think that might have been the last possible year that you can have a living memory of the the Brooklyn Dodgers. If I had been like a year younger or six months younger, I might have been too young to remember watching them on TV and, you know, hear people talking about them. So I get a lot into the whole myth of the Brooklyn Dodgers and I get a lot into sports, the 61 Yankees. So there's that. Uh, you said, wasn't the candy store a good time? Uh, <laughs> the the main chapter about the candy store is called The Great Candy Store Tragedy. And <laughs> <laughs> well, that doesn't sound like that, a happy memory. Uh, but So you, you get into the sports with, I guess, those sound like they might have been happy memories. No, are there, are there any happy memories? Yeah, yeah, you know, there's... Um, <laughs> There are happy memories, but, you know, it's it's not a, a happy book. It's uh, a, a dark book that, you know, if there's there's happy stuff, it's like when I got out of the um, 
immediate surrounding and started paying attention to something that was happening beyond my block, like the space race in the right. 19, you know, in the 1960s, the uh, U.S. against the, uh, the Russians. And that was exciting. And, you know, I kind of brought that back and um, the home run thing with uh, with uh, Roger Maris breaking Babe Ruth's record. That was like really exciting it was like probably the most exciting thing i'd ever witnessed next to the space race right. it didn't seem possible that after all those years somebody would break babe ruth's record and roger maris did it without steroids right yeah uh, the brooklyn dodgers i think they left in 57 right they left uh for somewhere yeah, around I, I don't remember offhand but 57 sounds about right yeah i was like you know and, four or five years old and you were in Flatbush, you were within walking distance of Ebbets Field, no? It was about a mile away. Wow. And there's a scene in the book. My father had a candy store on Church Avenue, right by the train station. And one day, right before I was born, Duke Snyder came in and ordered a chocolate egg cream. <laughs> and so. I, I know, I had a guy on, uh, an older guy older than us <laughs> um who had written a book about brooklyn and, and called it happened in brooklyn i believe and he was talking about how the the brooklyn dodgers were part of the neighborhood like in in the off season in those days they worked regular jobs they worked at the hardware store down the block and, and stuff like that and people like duke snyder was a regular guy and and that's it's so hard to believe and and for people to grasp in today's society that you know the way baseball players are now elite super millionaires it's hard to kind of go back in a half a century and realize you know there was a day when they were just regular people and not put on a pedestal or well they were idolized but not not in the way they are treated like elites today that's that's they, a big difference yeah they were working guys they needed a, a job in the off season to pay the bills Right. <laughs> but that would, must have been very cool. And and coming in for, you know, just a, a Sunday or something like that um, must have been very uh, normal in those times. But we can't imagine that. I mean, now, I mean, if you think of uh, a baseball star today, Jacob DeGrom going into a, a store and just sitting down at the counter for a Sunday, probably be mobbed and the people would be on, the, on their cell phones taking pictures and getting everybody <laughs> yeah, to come right. out. Yeah. Exactly. And then yeah. he's not going to get on the, the subway right next door to go right. one stop to Prospect <laughs> Park to right. go to work, you know, have a, a limousine waiting out front. Right. So was this book uh, therapy for you? I confronted a lot of demons I really had buried and um, hadn't thought about for a long time. So I guess in a way, you know, it was therapeutic, but I wrote the book to be entertaining that it's actually a very funny book. One of the things like, you know, how do you deal with the Nazis and the Holocaust? You be Mel Brooks, you make it funny. Yeah. You make a movie like Dr. Strangelove. And, you know, I, these Jewish comedians, Buddy Hackett, Mel Brooks, they were worshiped like gods. Yeah, uh, you know, and I think uh, we've lost a little of that 
sensibility of uh, when, you know, make fun of your pain. Uh, I think we've lost a little bit of that in, in, in the culture today. I think we're really sensitive about what comedy can and, and can't do and forget that uh, comedy can be healing for people, especially if they've gone through uh, something really traumatic like that. It can be a healing force, and we need to kind of, this whole cancel culture stuff has got me really upset. Do you have any thoughts on that about, you know, comedy under under too much of a microscope from the public about what can be said and what can't be said i'm a free speech advocate i um i love the first amendment and um i just think that you need to be able to say all kinds of things and you need to be able to listen to all kinds of things and have civilized discussions, no matter how touchy the subject is. I I don't like the idea of cancel culture. No. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't think so as a writer. You would. Um, so, uh, one last thing about about this period of your life, because I think I think it's interesting in school, because it was ha- still happening when I was in school. I'm, I think you must have experienced the. Um, duck and cover drills what we had in school where you'd have to they'd teach children that uh an atomic bomb attack could could be imminent and we need to figure out a way to prepare for that so you'd get on for people who don't have any idea what i'm talking about you'd get under your desk you uh, tuck your head <laughs> between your legs put your head on, hands over your head and they would close the drapes and close the blinds and you'd sit in darkness and act as if we were going to be bombed by the Russians. Was that part of your experience in Brooklyn growing up? There is a scene in the book that takes place during the Cuban Missile Crisis. You were too young for that. That was like 1961. And what happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis is we really did think that there was going to be a, a nuclear war. And I remember sitting in school and thinking that if we get blown up by an atomic bomb is this really going to hurt or is it going to happen so fast i'll never know what hit me and i talk about the absurdity of the the duck and cover drills and yeah that kind of stuff is in there that bobby in nazi land is a very funny book it's a darkly funny book if you like the dark humor of a movie like dr strangelove uh you should take a look at Bobby and Naziland. Uh, one more thing. This is actually late breaking news. Uh, the title. I lived with that title for many years when I was writing the book. I just thought it was the perfect title. It was like, you know, kind of Mel Brooksian, Alice in Wonderland, that kind of thing. And I said, this is the title. The publisher, yeah, 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 sure. Let's go with that title. Um, I started doing events. This is pre-pandemic. And I was going around different cities, reading from the book and talking to people. And uh, people were coming up to me after the events and they were saying, love the book, hated the title. (laughs) I was was getting that and um, that's not good. In any case, what I recently found out is the publisher agrees with this. And what they're going to do is they're going to re-release the book under a different title in 
2022, this coming year. I don't know exactly when yet, but it's going to be called a Brooklyn memoir, My Life as a Boy, instead wow. of Bobby and I. That really, really um, changes the um, the expectation of it in a huge way. That title is, it gives you no idea. Because, again, I think, you know, a lot of the people who grew up even five or six years later in white bread America, you know, middle America, have no idea about that experience of how real and that war was to the people especially in in new york because we had such a melting pot of of people and brooklyn especially too we had you know you had a lot of italians jews irish and at that time blacks and uh puerto ricans were, were coming into the mix so we had kind of a a melting pot uh in brooklyn and it was just so so soon after the war that it was very real to those people in a way it wasn't to most of the country. So I think that your original title is, is, uh, tells a story better about and, and prepares you better for what, a, what the story is going to be than something generic in uh, a, mem- a Brooklyn memo or whatever, a boy, <laughs> growing up in Brooklyn or whatever. My life as a boy. Uh, yeah. it's a much more, it's a, a subtler title. Um, you know, I think they're right that the distributor and the, um, the publisher, they brainstormed on this and they just felt that seeing the name Nazi in a title was putting off people and uh, making them not want to pick it up. And this whole thing that loved the book, hated the title. I'm just amazed that the publisher decided to, to, to do that because, uh, you know, this was all pre you know, right before the pandemic, the book came out, things were going fine. I was, you know, out there promoting it. And then, once the pandemic happened and I could no longer get out in front of people and read from the book and, you know, all that, um, sales were no longer so robust. And I just said, all right, you know, this um, bad luck pandemic, what are you going to do? And I was really surprised to hear, well, what we're going to do is we're going to re-release the book and call it a Brooklyn memoir. Okay. (laughs) Let's try that. <laughs> yeah. Well, whatever works. I wish you great, great success with it. Now, uh, being a, and I don't think, I mean, if I look at Beaver Street, now there's a title, there's a title I might think might get a little, uh, have a little problem being on a, a shelf in Barnes and Noble, Beaver Street. Uh, I would think if any of your, now, uh, any of your books were, um, to have the title change, I would think it would probably be that one. <laughs> but, uh, uh <laughs> no, Beaver Street did okay. People were able to deal with Beaver Street. Uh, I can't. I think it would be. A dual, I have no. I no doubt that a book like that would uh, do okay because people are uh, and always have been um, interested in sex and pornography and all that. Yeah, kind of and stuff. you know what's wrong with Beaver Street? There's a street one block below Wall Street. It's Beaver Street, <laughs> and I bet you it's packed, stuffed, as they say. That that Beaver yeah, Street it was, is stuffed. It, it, <laughs> It was named Beaver Street because, you know, back in the old days when the city was founded, um, they sold beaver skins there. Right. Beaver so, pelts. So having um, some experience in, the, in editing pornographic magazines and things like that, I just want to get your take on, uh, you know, I, as you mentioned earlier, you're for free speech, so am I. But I think pornography has gone so far um, 
into the abyss with with where it is now that i and i don't want to see it censored in any way but i think uh it's just gone it gotten to insane roots where i don't know what's left to shock people anymore and any comment on the state of pornography today you know i worked in pornography it wasn't even called pornography but it was it was called adult entertainment men's magazines and there at at the time, this was between 1983 and 1999, um, the business was still kind of fun and, uh, you know, it was possible to do magazines and, and uh, make money and that kind of, but I looked at so much pornography over those years because I had to, it was my job to look at pornography. Um, I got pretty sick of it. Uh, I pretty much, um, you know, since I left the business, I think for the first five years, I didn't look at anything. I just didn't want to. It was like a, a purification process. Um, but yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of garbage out there, and I like erotica more than pornography. And the difference is. Erotica, you could relate to. It's like good writing that tells uh, a good story that happens to have very hot sex in it. Yeah. You know, po pornography is just, you know, I don't know what it is anymore. No, uh, neither do I. And I, I'm, I'm a little concerned, not to the point where I, I want to become activist and do anything about it, but I'm a little concerned with where we're going with the Internet and, it, you know, uh, it children can get a, a get a hold of it very easily i mean they basically ask you to uh push a button to say you're 18 and that's it and so and you're in so i mean and who who's gonna say no a, kid, a kid's six years old seven years old is still gonna say yes uh, and they're in and so uh they can see all this content and it's not like when i was five or six years old seeing a playboy magazine and the centerfold was there kind of in full nudity but uh today we have and i think uh uh brendan walsh called it uh you know we, anal cream pie gang bang i mean what <laughs> what comes after that i mean and so kids are being exposed to you know depravity uh, uh you know and and things you would have never thought of as people would think of as erotic or in any way it's more it's just like for shock value i think it's a, a dangerous trend in in humanity i'm not sure it's good for for the culture uh, but I just wanted to get your opinion on that. I agree. Yeah. I mean, you know, you uh, you took the words right out of my mouth. Like a, yeah. a, a seven-year-old kid looks at some of the more extreme stuff that's out there. It, it's ugly. It's extreme. It has nothing to do with sex and pleasure and erotica. And it's mind warping. It's I could imagine a kid being traumatized by that. Right. So I, mean, uh, I could imagine an adult being traumatized by it. I, I can too. I mean, I, I definitely can. And I can see, uh, especially adults, you know, guys who don't get a lot, uh, twisting their psyche around that kind of stuff. Because if they, you know, and I have, I have a friend who I think it, I, 
I think he's a pornography addict, you know, and the people have said, well, there's no real addiction to pornography. Well, the guy I know, he's uh, obsessed with it. It's all he ever talks about and it's all he ever wants to share or talk about on social media. Uh, and so I do think even adults, adult men can be really messed up by it. So, but I, I'm off my soapbox about that. That's <laughs> Tell me about how Bobby from Nazi land, uh, where this, uh, where he first became, uh, interested in music and the Beatles. Uh, was it Ed Sullivan? Yeah, it was, I was going to say, uh, it happened to me the same way it happened to about 70 million other people the same night. Um, I watched Ed Sullivan there with the Beatles. I liked what I, I heard. I read around the corner to Church Avenue to Lampston's and like the next day uh, I bought the Beatle album, Meet the Beatles, and I played it to death and I still have it. And yeah, I can I, I knew the words to every song on that album backwards and forwards. And yeah, the Beatles were a part of me and they went on for so long when they were going on. It was like, oh, you know, they they'll be gone tomorrow. And yet like they stayed there when, you know, everybody else just faded away and, you know, the Beatles kept going. And I maybe went two uh, years at one point, didn't pay attention to the Beatles, got like totally caught up in sports or something. And then somebody turned me on to the white album. And I was like, Holy shit, they're still doing it. That's an amazing album. And it's, just by osmosis, I picked up all this information about the Beatles. I knew more than I realized. And, uh, you know, then the Beatles broke up. And this guy I went to school with got a job working for John Lennon. And uh, he wow. came to me and he said, we're going to let's do a book about this. And that's how Nowhere Man came about. And that's how... Uh, I had access to Lennon's diaries. Holy smokes. That that had to be really um, something to just behold getting a, a hold of uh, Lennon's diaries. But let's, let's go back a little because she said, you know, people didn't think they were last because uh, in those days, in the early 60s, when they first came over, no, no bands lasted long. I mean, pop bands were what they were. And to to be honest, the Beatles' music at that time was pretty shallow. I want to hold your hand, and then uh, she loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was all this like fluff stuff, which it was catchy ear candy, and people bought it up. But wow. it certainly didn't uh, lend itself to a prolonged career. What happened with them is that sets them apart from so many others. And I don't even think the Stones achieved this, but somehow they had the longevity. Uh, but uh, the idea of advancing into a higher art form, did you see that happening? Did you experience that happening? Or was it uh, something that you had to wait until after all the Beatle years were over and look back and say, wow, look how they really grew? Because there's a huge difference between the White Album and that first album, and I Want to Hold Your Hand and that stuff. Uh, did, well, were you conscious of that? Well, let's start with Meet the Beatles. You said that I want to hold your hand is uh, what uh, uh, air candy, fluff, etc. Then why? 
after all these years, when you listen to it, assuming you haven't been listening to it every day, why does it still sound fresh? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I'm not sure. It, it, because- I, but it, it's one of the things I'm conditioned. I can't, yeah, you can play any, any old Beatles song and I'm, you know, I feel fine is still one of my favorite songs, and that's one and, of those. Really. <laughs> and somehow it sounds fresh. That yeah. there's something going on there that makes it sound fresh. Like you take a group like the, uh, like the Doors, and for some reason, the fr- if if you've already heard it a thousand times, there's no freshness to it. But I've heard the Beatles a thousand times, and you know, if I go a year or two without hearing. That song, it's like wow, it still sounds fr- it still sounds fresh, and um, you know that's the magic of it. You know, there's a magic quality that the Beatles had that nobody else had to that degree. You know, maybe Dylan, but you know there was magic to it, and you can't explain magic. Right. Uh, well, one of the things that fascinates me, and <clears throat> I don't want to get too like spiritual here because it is kind of I don't, and I'm not sure if that's what it is. But the odds, well, you know, you talk about the, that that magic, that quality, that the energy behind that music. The odds of those four individuals finding each other to me is mind blowing. Uh, and I think there's something to the universe because, you know, if Pete Best hadn't been fired, if they hadn't found Ringo, it wouldn't have been the same band. And you could say that about George. You could say that about all. I mean. And people will point to they were successful after the Beatles, but that's because they were already successful and and had that. I don't think they would have been the same if they had not found each other is the point I'm trying to make here. And I I think there's something to the synchronicity of the universe or whatever it is. uh, It's more than chance that those four guys just happen to find each other. Do, Do you ever think about that, the odds of that talent coming together in one unit? I suppose I've, uh, you know, that sort of thing has crossed my mind. I've, I mean, I've been talking about uh, about my book, uh, Nowhere Man, for like 21 years now, more than 21 years. And, you know, I get questions like that. And I think, yeah, the whole thing, there is something magical and supernatural about what happened. And the story of the Beatles, you know, not just the music, but the personalities and you know, the whole Beatle thing, uh, there's, it, it, it's, it's got the power of um, a Bible story. It does. It absolutely does. Uh, was Lennon always your favorite Beatle, or did you go to, you know, <laughs> other uh, periods where Paul or George or Ringo or whoever w- might have been your favorite? Yeah, I, I probably liked Lennon best because he had that attitude. But... Um, yeah, I, for a time, I didn't really differentiate between the, f- the four of them, that it was only like probably after the Beatles um, broke up that I started paying attention to them as four different people with four distinct personalities. And then, like I say, the Lennon Diaries came to me. That was magical. And this was after John was killed. And... It was like through those diaries that I felt as if I were communing with John's spirit. And, you know, that's the energy. You know, that's what's kept my book uh, Nowhere Man alive for 21 years, that I've somehow managed to capture 
some of that magic and get it into the book. And were you? Uh, was that your fir- that first book? Uh, no way. That man? was that was my first book that was published. Now, yeah. N- now uh, I, I hate to say. I mean, was that luck? Was that uh, again, synchronicity with the universe. A lot of authors, because I have a lot of authors on this program, and I talk to a lot of authors, and I know a lot of authors are in the audience. I mean, to get handed a gift like the late John Lennon's uh, diaries and, and manuscripts there, uh, as an author, I mean, I, most authors wet their pants just dreaming about that. The moment that happened, tell me about, I mean, for you, your friend comes over and just hands them to you or did would, did he give you some advance notice that, hey, I could get these? I mean, tell me about that. No, that from the day he started working for John, uh, we had agreed we got to write a book about it. And um, yeah, I was a professional writer at, at that point. Uh, this was, his name's Fred, Fred Seaman. Uh, it was his first job out of college and oh. he just started feeding me information and i was writing it down and you know after john was killed he comes to me with the diaries and tapes and just like all kinds of raw material but uh it was clear that the diaries were the key to the book that we wanted to do and um you know like i say that when i was able to finally get into the diaries, transcribe the whole thing, and really see what John was saying and what he was going through on a, a day-to-day basis. That was the key to the book. Wow. And, you know, there's, again, the word magic. There was a magical energy in the diaries, and I was able to catch lightning in a bottle, I suppose. And, uh, you know, read nowhere, man. You'll see what I'm talking about. There's a uh, a reason that book has endured for all these years. And I should point out too, uh, it was not easy to get it published. It was rejected for 18 years. Wow. Yeah. That Uh, I would put it aside. This is ridiculous. I'm never going to get this published. And then, you know, the, the stars lined up and it was finally published. It became a bestseller. It changed my life. That's uh, surprising to me because after Lennon's death, he was pretty much canonized. I mean, uh, he was, uh, and he still is in a lot of ways uh, compared to Jesus and Gandhi and Muhammad. (laughs) I mean, you go down the line of uh, martyrs and and saints and whatever, and Lennon's name gets mentioned with those people. Uh, So it's surprising to me that publishers would not be eager to, to, especially because you had that source material that nobody else had that most writers would be very envious just to take a look at. Are those uh, journals still uh, in existence? Do you have them? Uh, No, no. (laughs) I absolutely do not have them. (laughs) I do not want uh, even the the slightest hint of anybody thinking. No, I do not have them. (laughs) (laughs) Where Uh, are they? Do you know where they are? Yeah, Yoko has them. Okay. Yeah, that the uh, part of the reason it took 18 years for the book to get published is because that when Fred gave me the diaries, Yoko accused him of stealing the diaries. Oh, and okay. uh, according to Fred, John had told him to use the diaries to write a book. 
And um, yeah, I was just a hired hand. Gotcha. And, um, you know, when I was handed all that material, I knew that I was given the story of my generation. And it's the story of the Beatles. And I had to fight for 18 years to get the book published. But then, you know, it finally got published. And speaking of nuclear ex explosions and take cover drills, uh, yeah, that book went off like an atomic bomb. And, uh, you know, it was it was crazy, uh, you know, to go from being, you know, an obscure writer, an obscure freelance writer to, um, you know, a book that was getting translated when everybody was talking about it. And the the energy of what happened in 2000 when the book was first published, it carries through. Mm. When did he start writing the diaries? Was it uh, the early years or was it after the Beatles broke up? Or what, what, where was when did, did they pick up? Like, when did he start writing? It was the diaries of his years of seclusion from 1975 to December 8th, 1980, when he was killed. They opened wow. January 1975 when he left Yoko and he's still with with uh, May Pang. Right. And uh, soon after, he goes back to Yoko. And then, you know, Sean is born. And uh, he retires from public life. And then in 1980, he makes his great comeback with the Double Fantasy album. And you know, then he's murdered. And that's kind of the arc of the story. And, you know, in the meantime, what's he doing during all these years when he's um, in seclusion? Uh, you know, the the myth is, well, he was he was raising Sean. Uh, yeah, he was doing that to some degree. But, you know, they had 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 nannies to, uh, you know, take care of Sean. They had 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 servants and uh, assistants and, um, you know, just all kinds of people to help with the domestic chores. And what was John doing? John was sleeping. John was smoking a lot of weed. John was teaching himself how to program dreams. He's writing all this in his his diary uh, they were really into occult stuff that he was into astrology they had a full-time tarot card reader yoko was having uh, her tarot cards read virtually every single day by their full-time tarot card reader charlie swan uh lennon had his tarot cards read too he was into numerology he was into astrology he was into yoga magic i keep using the word magic there's magic here there's 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 magic there they really practiced magic in the um the supernatural sense of it that yoko paid a bruja in colombia the cap uh, the country she he paid her i think it was sixty thousand dollars to teach her how to catch how to cast magic spells so they were doing stuff like this, that they were trying to control the world, to control everything through through magic. Uh, Charlie Swan, John Green, it was his real name, Charlie Swan, the tarot card reader. You know, he also advised them on, um, you know, he would when they did business deals, he would read tarot on it. They would consult the astrological charts, they would run the numbers on it. Uh, it was just, you know, there was this heavy occult vibe. And that's a big part of what was happening uh, in the Dakota. And it's a big part of the book.
I did not know that. That's a revelation to me. I got to get the book now. 21 years later, I'm slow to the table, but I'm going to have to get the book. Uh, but it's interesting to me that the tarot guy couldn't predict uh, what would happen on December 8th. Yeah, a lot of people say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, have had a number of psychics on recently and actually uh, had a blow up last week that I did not end up publishing because i ended up pulling it down because i kind of lost my temper at a so-called psychic who was basically uh just saying his proof that he's a he's a genuine psychic is real and the other psychics i had on the show were, were all phonies and uh, and i basically said you know what i don't believe in any of proof i think all of it's out there but i keep an open mind to it which is why i keep interviewing those people but i don't i've never seen anybody's proof that was real uh what do you have uh, do you have any beliefs about the authentic Authenticity of this uh, Charlie Swan guy, or, or whatever you said his name. Well, he was uh, the word I couldn't think of. He was a, a, a psychic too. That you know, he made. Um, well, you know, part of it was was uh, reading the tarot cards, but they believed John believed. I guess Yoko did too. That Charlie Swan was psychic. Um, do I believe in it? You know, I'll tell you. When I was like reading about all this stuff and researching it, there's something very seductive about the occult. Oh, and I agree. Some, yeah, yeah, something like, um, like uh, the numerology. That of all the occult practices, numerology is the easiest one to understand, and I really got caught up in it. That. I was researching it. I know John was into it. Is you know whole number nine thing, but he was really into numerology. Chiro's book of numbers was one of his bibles, and you know they would run everything through the numbers. That you, your bookies would probably appreciate this. Uh, that you know that they were. Uh, I'm gonna have to call my Lenin friends now to know because I you know I followed Lennon pretty extensively. I never knew about any of this stuff, the numerology or the fact that he, he had any interest in the occult. Just to go, I, I guess I focused mostly, mostly on the music stuff and all that kind of stuff and the drug use. Uh, you know, I know that he was uh, from from the White Album period right up to like 75. He was very much, uh, um, I don't want to call a heroin addict, but very Active in use in using heroin and all that kind of stuff. So that stuff kind of um, was the stuff I focused on and learned about him. I never learned about his occult stuff. Do you think Yoko changed? And I know you don't have any uh, uh, direct access to her, but after the murder, her attitudes towards that occult stuff might have changed a little bit. Or do you? Uh, you would think so. You would hope you would, so. You would uh, think, yeah. Yeah, you asked me if I believed in it. You know, I got caught. I got caught up in it as part of the research, and I just got caught up in it. But it was a phase I went through, and that you know, I don't look at the numbers on the license plates anymore, and every address and every street sign. That I got addicted to it. That you know, if I'm going to 
get addicted to something. It was that damn numerology. And, uh, you know, I'm over it now. It's, it's, it's behind me. I'm, I'm a recovered numerologist. Right. Uh, <laughs> so I, I didn't even put the two together. You mentioned number nine, which uh, your revolution number nine, where that was just like a freaky thing on the White Album. But then there was dream number nine, and you mentioned he was like trying to program dreams. Uh, so that number nine was kind of a... Um, a repeating kind of thing in his life and, and I, didn't, I didn't even pick up on that until now when you just mentioned that number nine thing uh well, what, what was it about number nine for him he was born on october 9th sean was born on october 9th when you get into into to, to numerology the number nine is it's a special number in a lot of ways uh but any multiple of nine is also a very powerful number. So like 9, 18, 27, these are all powerful numbers that um, connect with with um, with John. So, right. all right, Yoko was born October 18, uh, February 18th. Paul was born, Paul McCartney was born June 18th. It was just his birthday. Uh, and if you so, add any any of those digits up, they make nine too. So the right, the, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, that's it. the thing that makes it special. That any multiple of nine, even in the millions and billions and trillions, if you add it up, it'll always break down to nine. That you keep adding it together and adding it together, and it's wow. indestructible. In, interesting stuff. I never realized that about Lennon. Uh, so. Uh, the death, uh, his death. Now you were around for that. Were, were you uh, one of the people who were out there uh, holding uh, vigil for days and days in New York at Strawberry Field and and around the Dakota and all that stuff? I went down there the night he was killed. You know, for the two years preceding it, in my mind, I was thinking about this book that I was going to write with my friend Fred, and it was like never clear when we were going to move forward with trying to publish the book. And then when John was killed, obviously something changed. And a couple of months later, Fred comes to me with the diaries. And, you know, I heard the story. This is what John wants. We're carrying out John's, carrying out John's will. And they're, you know, at the time, I believed it. I wanted to believe it. I've had a long time to think about it. Do I think this is is really true? And I think that there's some truth to it. Uh, I don't know if it's exactly true the way Fred conveyed it to me, but I think that there is some truth to it, that John did want the true story of his life told and fred was a journalism major why would john hire a journalism major as his personal assistant if he didn't want some journalism to come out of it right that you know if you're like the most famous person on the planet and you don't want your story told, probably best not to hire a journalism major. <laughs> yeah, if you want to keep it secret, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Good, I, good point. <laughs> uh, yeah, you would think, you know, that that's just common sense. Uh, but the, the question that begs is, why didn't Fred write the book himself? 
because I had already had some success as a writer and, um, yeah, he, um, he was one of my big supporters and, you know, he just thought that it was good to have me on board as like, you know, a professional guiding hand through this, um, this, this project. And, uh, I, uh, I was into it, you know, that I was devastated when John was shot, but I also knew that it was going to change my life. And um, I liked being in a position where I could help John's spirit carry on. And that's what I tried to do with the book. You know, uh, I the very ne- the night he was shot, um, I was tuning into local radio here on Long Island, WBAP, and Joel Martin uh, used to do an overnight show there, and uh, he started at eleven, and seven minutes into his program, he got the news that John Lennon was shot, and that night he was doing a uh, a program with Psychic George, George Anderson, and they at, even at that moment they were trying to. Uh, contact the spirit of John Lennon and and talk to him and it just seemed to me uh, a little too soon to be d- doing all that stuff and and all that stuff. Um, a lot has been written about uh, the true John Lennon because he we we have a a image of him that the media has has kind of built up as, and you know songs like Imagine play into it, but that he was just all about you know, peace and, and love and all that kind of stuff. And, but he was kind of a, a conflicted and a very complex character. He was also a bit of a ruffian being young and got into a lot of fights and that kind of stuff. What did you learn from these memoirs that uh, people would be surprised about the personality of John Lennon from his, from his journal, rather, I mean? Uh, one of the things that surprised me was his psychic connection to Paul McCartney, that he was always thinking about Paul, always writing about Paul in his journal, always wondering what Paul was up to, uh, feeling really jealous of Paul, feeling very happy when Paul was busted in Japan for marijuana and his concert tour was ruined and, you know, Paul went to jail and John believed that Yoko cast a, a spell and that's how Paul was, uh, was wow. busted in Japan. But that was like the high point of, uh, of the month of, you know, a good portion of the year that, you know, he really took pleasure in Paul being arrested that he really, just like the song, he really was a jealous guy. Wow. Uh, good point. I've had about that one too. Um, so did any of the Beatles comment on your book when it was out and when it first came out, did any of them ever offer any commentary on it? No, no, that, uh, not likely that would happen that, you know, some, uh, you know, Ono's spokesman tried to discredit the book, but, uh, did yeah, you ever, did, were you ever concerned that she put a spell on you? <laughs> I think my magic is a match for her magic. All right, good. good. Yeah. 
I back in the day when I was doing radio, which is right around that uh, time. I mean, I had a uh, Madame Zelda, I believe. <laughs> she th- she put a spell on me. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, it kind of freaked me out a little bit. And uh, and you know, and I wasn't a huge believer in that stuff, but just knowing that that it's there, you're always looking around to see. You know, it kind of it's always in the back of your mind when people tell you that they put a hex on you or whatever, a curse on you or whatever. Um, so no, it, it, I said I said Yoko Ono only the best vibes, and uh, you know she's not my enemy, and uh, I hope she understands if she's watching this or one of her assistants are watching this that she's not my enemy, and um, you know yeah. that if she needs to get in touch with me, her lawyers know where to call my lawyers. I, right. Uh, what about the idea? Uh, and I don't know how much you know about this. I just was getting your opinion on it that you actually wrote Imagine. Oh, I doubt that. You know, I think that, uh, you know, he kind of uh, based it on her idea that, like, you know, uh, imagine whatever, you know, uh, imagine um, um, Michelangelo's sculpture in the sky or something like that, that, you know, imagine this, um, imagine that. John turned it into uh, a song that became, you know, the international anthem. Yeah, that's ba- that was basically my take when I heard it. I had a Beatle author on, and uh, Danny, I'm sorry if I can't remember. I know his last name uh, starts with an S. I can't remember his last name. But he's a, a Beatle historian and author, and he told me that story that Yoko actually wrote Imagine. And I my initial reaction to that was pretty much what you just said. I I think she probably had a lot of influence in it, but when it came to actually writing the song, I think that was it was pretty close to what we had known from John. I mean, melodically and the whole bit, so I don't I, I don't doubt that he wrote it, but I uh, You know, Yoko is just not known for, uh, you know, catchy melodies and 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 memorable lyrics. You know, that's that's not her thing. Right. I think I read on your website somewhere, and it's uh, robertrosennewyorkcity.com for, for the folks out there. I think I read on there that you're a singer, too. Did you, were you? No, a- that's my wife. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to say, did you, did you, uh, were you uh, in, in a band and, and sang for, but your wife is a singer, not you. Yeah, she's a singer. She has a band. Her name is, is uh, Mary Lynn Mayscott. And you can find out about her by going to MaryLynnMayscott.com. Okay, but, cool. No, I'll- she's the singer in the family. I'll put that. I'll put that in the description. So, have you ever? Uh, and, and we'll get. We're out of time here. So, but I do. I do want to ask you this: uh, Have you had any inclination since that book was a big success for you? And of course, Blunt Death was part of it. But have you had any inclination to kind of write about, you know, the other Beatles? George's past, maybe write about him, or uh, thinking about the other Beatles uh, who are still with us, writing a book about them? No, no. That I wrote about Lennon because of this amazing thing that happened which gave me tremendous insight into into john lennon if you know somebody wants me he wants to give me george harrison's <laughs> diaries to turn into a book or you know if paul wants to give me his diaries you know paul um i'm always looking for freelance work you know uh i'll um I'll do something with your diaries. Yeah, yeah. There was a, uh, I think it was proven to be phony, a YouTube 
uh, video audio piece of that was supposedly a George Harrison deathbed, um, not confessional, but kind of uh, memoir of George kind of talking for a couple of hours uh, on his deathbed about his history and all that kind of stuff. I think it was proven to be phony, though. I don't know where all that stuff is, but always interesting stuff for the Beatles. And uh, hopefully, you know, Paul and Ringo will be with us for, for a while longer, but we're all getting long in the tooth now, so you know it won't won't be forever unfortunately uh robert i i wish you great success with the stuff uh and uh and and continued success with the with the uh bobby and nazi land when it's coming out uh, when will it be um re-released under a new title uh in 2022 i don't know the exact uh, date yet this was um very recently decided Cool. So then a good thing now to entice people to buy it is that the original title will become a collector's item. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So time to buy it now. Right. (laughs) Yeah. If you want to read Bobby in in Nazi land, um, you know, get it while it's still Bobby in Nazi land and uh, you will have uh, a a collector's item. Right. and so Sell on to, eBay in 20 years. And go to Rob, Robert, uh, RobertRosenNewYorkCity.com. And then link NYC. to my, NYC.com. I'm sorry. I always say New York City when I see NYC. Uh, RobertRosenNYC.com. That's where the links to all his books are, and you can get them there. And again, are you doing a signed, uh, signed version of while it's still, uh, while it's now going, preparing to be a collector's item? Are you doing signed versions at all? Uh, the only signing thing i've got on my current schedule is in st louis at subterranean books on i think october 7th or 8th i was supposed to do that last year for lenin's 80th birthday and um it got postponed because of the pandemic so i'm doing it one year later subterranean books Okay, uh, I think well, October 7th, St. Louis. Well, good luck with that. I know a lot of people are doing online signing. I mean, basically, uh, you can order a signed copy. I'm not sure how the mechanisms work, which that's why I asked. A lot of authors are, are offering a special. Uh, for a couple bucks more, you get a signed autograph the copy and makes it even a little more valuable so it seems like this is the time to buy that book and get it signed even if you gotta go to st louis because it's going to be out by a different title which is going to up the value of the current book go buy it yeah (laughs) if you want a a signed copy you know write to me and i will tell you what to do i will get you a signed copy well, th- oh, thank you for your time. I wish you great success. Again, it's robertrosennyc.com. Uh, and been a very insightful and interesting conversation from uh, Brooklyn and uh, Auschwitz to Beatles and <laughs> uh, a, whole, a whole range of subjects tonight. So I thank you for your time. I wish you great success. Thanks for coming. And bye for now. Thank you very much, Matt. I had fun. Thank you. Bye for now. Robert Rosen, folks, I, I hope you enjoyed that uh, program. Insightful, a lot of uh, different uh, things that we touched on. But um, to me, uh, I learned something here tonight. I learned about a, a couple of things, but I did not know about uh, Lennon's occult uh, uh, interest. And I had, I 
recall now there was some interest in the number nine that I knew about, but I never associated it with numerology. Going to have to buy the book, and uh, I know I'm 21 years late getting to the table, but I'm going to have to learn some more about that part of Len's life because I've always been interested in his life, and uh, now I have something new to kind of uh, look into. I hope you enjoyed this program. I hope you come back, uh, tell your friends about it and all that kind of stuff. You write to me at info at minddogtv.com, info at minddogtv.com. Uh, who do we have tomorrow? Uh, hopefully everything goes right. Tomorrow we have another uh, author, uh, Stephanie Levine at 1 p.m. And no, then no show scheduled for tomorrow night. Maybe we'll get the studio back in order. Still fixing the lighting thing. You can see that we're still all purplish here. We'll get that worked out too. Thanks to Adobe for screwing us up. Again, thank you, Adobe. Every I'm urging all my listeners to boycott Adobe for a given period of time because I'm very angry at them for screwing up my studio. So I hope you join me tomorrow at 1 p.m. Till then, I'm Matt Napo for my TV podcast. Thanks for coming. Have a great night. Bye for now.
to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now.